Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. We are in Matthew 18. If you have your Bibles, you can grab those and get them out. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back that you can keep and steal. I promise we won't judge you. Uh, Otherwise, you can get on your phone. We're going to be in Matthew 18. Um, I'll be reading through the NET version if you want to follow along in that. Otherwise, you can, whatever translation you like. Um, We are in um, this really pivotal point in Matthew where uh, we are traveling with Jesus. Matthew takes us through this journey and all the regions in in, um, Capernaum and the region of Galilee, um, and they all have impact on what we're like reading in the scriptures and where they're at and what's going on. And we're at the point in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been going through it for several weeks, dozens of weeks, and we're at this point where Jesus is kind of on the final trail home, if you will, to Jerusalem where he'll be crucified, killed, and all of that will go down. And so his ministry focus has kind of shifted. The first few parts of Matthew are focused a lot more on just the, the kingdom that God talks about, this kingdom of God coming on earth, becoming a reality. And so that looks like healings, looks like people being cured of leprosy and their sight being given back or um, even just demons being cast out and all these type of things, right? And so now Jesus shifts his focus from the tangible reality of that to just kind of talking about the kingdom and what it looks like and ultimately giving and revealing um, it's, it's full of like uh, people who are willing to submit and lower themselves and he will do that through suffering, honestly, a, a bogus death by the Romans and their religious leaders. And so the map on the screen here kind of gives you like the visual of that. They... They were up in Caesarea Philippi a few uh, sections ago, and they had what's called the Transfiguration, where Jesus is up on this mountain, and he just like turns to this like white cloud, and and his two closest disciples or three closest disciples are there, and uh, it's kind of this foreshadowing of and reminder of God being in the presence of Moses and Elijah. Now Jesus is saying like, "Hey, this is my son. This is the son of God." And from there, they come down the mountain, they start to travel south, and Jesus starts to give them these little bites of. Predictions, like basically it's foretelling what's going to happen. Hey, I'm going to be uh, betrayed at the hands of Jewish leaders. I will be crucified and, and tortured, and I will rise on the third day. And they seem to forget the rise on the third day part and get nervous. They get worried, right? They had abandoned their lives and everything to follow Jesus. They had been with him through all these different healings and miraculous things. They had heard profound teachings. They were starting to understand the reality of the kingdom. And then their leader's like, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, you're not, Right? And so naturally, you start to think about this group of people, this group of guys, they're teenage guys, they're all very different. Jesus, you might not realize this, but they're all like very different in their context, their social circles. Uh, Most of them would not jive well with other people in the group. You have like Jewish fishermen, then you have other Jewish friends, but then you have uh, Levi, who's Matthew, who's a tax collector who's hated by Jews because he overtaxes them. He basically works for Rome, and so he's really a social outcast. And then you have Simon the Zealot, different Simon, who, um, who uh, is a zealot, which means that he was basically a part of the insurrection of Rome. Like He has fought, he believes in violence and fighting to usurp Rome. And so Matthew and him have a lot of words to share. And it's just this hodgepodge of guys. Like, it is the people that you least like at our church, and you hang out with them all the time. That's what it is. And, and, and they're doing this, and then their leader, who has assembled them all together and created, trying to create unity and harmony, is like, hey, I'm going to be gone soon. And so what's the natural thought and inclination in their mind is verse 1, which is that what, at the time the disciples came to Jesus saying and asking this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Now, maybe you've been in college where you've heard like a professor say, like, there's no such thing as a, as a bad question. Have you ever heard that? I don't think that's true. I think there are bad questions for sure. Um, there are questions that are like, you weren't paying attention and you asked exactly what they just said, which I'm guilty of. Like my wife will talk to me while I'm on the phone and then I'll like ask a question that she just answered. But there's also questions that are bad where you like, you can kind of judge their heart by the question, if that makes sense. You kind of know what they're really like searching for. And this is one of those questions where they ask Jesus basically, hey, which one of us is the best, right? Like which one of us is doing it the best or doing it right? Or which one of us, like if you die, who's the next CEO? Like who's it going to be, right? And they're trying to build this security, this status. Who will have authority over this group, over this ministry and what we're planning on doing? And so Jesus, I think, internally is, is just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is ridiculous, right? And so th this story that we have, and this is, we're going to do like three little stories that all kind of blend together, is really establishing what we, if you're a follower of Jesus, what our posture is in light of that. And if, you, if you've ever read Matthew 18, maybe if you've grown up in the church, you've maybe heard that, that phrase thrown around, like, oh, they Matthew 18 someone. Typically what that means is they disciplined someone. Matthew 18 is what we call the discipline chapter, and, it, and we use it typically to describe the way at which we go about uh, church discipline or, like, accountability or someone's just way off course, like, how to rebuke them or how to bring them back, and that, right? But this passage in this chapter, people kind of skip these three little vignettes we get, and they just jump to, like, here, well, I'm going to bring another brother, and we're going to call you out. And if you don't listen, we're going to take the whole church, and then we're going to kick you out, right? Like, they kind of abuse it. And they miss the first three things that are happening here. And so we're going to work through those today, and they all have a unified form together. The first one is the disciples asking, honestly, this question where they just want to know, like, who's the best, right? Who has the best status? And Jesus' response is really peculiar. He, he in verse 2, he calls a child, and he's just like, here, you just stand here, child. And the child's probably like, what is going on? He's like, you should be like him. In verse 3, I, I tell you the truth, unless you turn around, which like we, you know, think about like repent, you turn around and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. And so the disciples' question was really just one about status, right? What title will I have? What authority will I get? What, what control will I be able to, to embody and have, right? And Jesus puts this little kid in front of them, and they're like, he's like, this, just be like this, right? Become like this. Now, what's interesting is a lot of times people read this story, and they, they think, like, I need to become like a child, meaning I need to have the characteristics of a child. I need to be innocent and curious and playful, and those are all good things, but that's not really what Jesus is getting at here. What Jesus is doing is he's taking someone on the lowest status of the social pole, and he's saying, lower yourself like them. Like, give yourself the, the expect the influence of a child. Now, if you're, if you're a parent, you've been around parents, you know, like, children pretty much, like, are always under the control of somebody, you know? When they're little, they, you start to give them more autonomy as they get older, but they're really not in charge. They like to think they are, especially when they're two or three. But they're not, and they are, they are to be disciplined, they are to be shepherded, right? And, and what they're doing, whether they like it or not, is they're kind of giving over authority to someone else, right? And in this culture, Jesus constantly brings children on the scene, he prays for them, he ministers to them, he hangs out with them, and all the disciples are like, no, nah, get these kids out of here, we don't care about the kids, right? Their brains aren't even fully formed yet, right? They have no power. Like, stop talking about the kids, right? It'd be like if we hired a really great speaker and we paid him 20K to come here and to stand on the stage and to give you like a teaching about, like he had a best-selling book about something, right? About 
anxiety, right? We pay all this money and all these people pack in the room and then he just hangs out with my daughter and I'm like, dude, I paid you all this money to come here and do this thing and you didn't do it, right? Jesus' heart is so for children and in this instance, he's revealing to them that the reason why is because God's heart reaches furthest to the people who are downtrodden, the orphan, the lowly, the social outcast. And if we continue to elevate ourselves, which is just a human tendency of pride and security, we elevate ourselves Jesus is like, this is what's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to ask questions like this where all you're concerned about is who's the best. And you're not even understanding the weight of what's going to happen to me and what will happen of you. So this is what he's getting at. And, and it, there's some really strong language here. If you look at this little passage, 2 through 5, he tells them to basically repent and become like little children. And he says, if you don't do that, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, it makes me kind of nervous when you read something like that, right? You're like, well, I thought I, I said the prayer, I'm like saved, and I had to check off all these things just to make sure. This verse seems really interesting. It seems it can, conflicting with, well, grace, it's free. Like, the gift of salvation is free, and it's grace. And why would I have to do this thing in order to be saved? What is Jesus actually saying here? Now, this is where, once again, it's very important to have a holistic understanding of Matthew and the other things Jesus says. There's two other times that he's basically used this extreme. We've actually read them in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 7. I think they'll be on the screen. Um, this is in his Sermon on the Mount. And he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, who were the best at it, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Later in chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, the Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, which is confusing because there's another scripture in Romans that says, If you say, like, Jesus is Lord, like, you'll be saved, right? And so it's really confusing. And then it says, Later in that, on uh, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do powerful deeds? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. This will happen again in chapter 19 in Matthew chapter 23, where the rich man won't drop his wealth or greed for the kingdom. And he, won't, he says, you know, it's better for you to get through a camel's eye than to go get, get into the kingdom being wealthy. And then the Pharisees who lock people out with their obsessive legalism. So he'll say this several times in Matthew. And we have to really take like, what's going on with what is happening now. And the unique part that's different from this scripture than the other ones is the other ones is talking about people who will never be true to God. Meaning they will never give the, themselves over to God. The Pharisees were consumed in legalism. Their hearts were not for God. They were like a Pharaoh. They were hardened toward the, the things of God and they had built this this world that was all around their pride, their status, their influence, their rules. But this instance is different. What Jesus is talking about here is children, disciples, and he's talking about less about never being true to God and more about when we're in the kingdom, do, does our heart and our desires fit with the kingdom of God? Do they flourish in the kingdom of God? And, and, and when we think about that, most people think about, I, I said the prayer, I accepted Jesus, I'm saved, right? And so my life's here, but like when I die, I'll go to heaven eternity, great, right? And then this middle phase is like, well, I just try to be a good person and like hopefully don't sin too much, right? But, but that's not what Jesus, that's not what really anyone reading any of the Gospels would interpret if you really understood what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom is here now. His first line is repent. The kingdom of God is near and then it's here. And so the kingdom of God now here in this room and in our area is in our hearts and it's in the world that we're around that the spirit is moving in the kingdom of the world. There's these two battles, right? Like these two conflictions. And so the kingdom of God in this moment is he's basically saying, if you continue down a path of elevating yourself and being obsessed with pride and, 
and influence and status, you're going to have a really hard time fitting into the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, as Jesus said in his first sermon, was the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, right? Those who thirst and hunger for good in the world, the righteousness of the world. And he's saying, those are the people who are in the kingdom, and if you bring your whole pride and status and say, how can I run this place? You're not going to fit in very well. In fact, you're going to be at odds with the kingdom that I'm trying to create, and the kingdom that I'm kind of trying to create will not have any of that. In fact, that's, that's hell. Hell is I know best. I am God, right? I want to elevate myself and become my own God or act like my own God or be in control, right? And, and the, the imagery that, that Jesus uses here is severe. He's actually going to mention hell in a little bit. But so just think of it like this. The kingdom of heaven is here and now. Are we living in lives that will actually flourish in the kingdom values that God wants for us? And in this case, Jesus is like, look, if you don't repent, if you don't become, like if you don't lower yourself, you are going to go down a path that's all about you. It's all about selfishness. And it's all about just how you can become better, right, in, in, in objectively. And so he's saying this, this is severe, right? And so what, what, we're, what we're getting at here in the first kind of part of these, these three sections, the first one summed up is that true discipleship, following Jesus, becoming formed into Jesus, is either, either uh, like willingly or, or just purposefully, it's eradicating the human tendency of obsessing over pride and status. Eradicating the tendency of pride and status. Now, this does not mean that you just self-deprecate. I think we oftentimes think, well, always me. Uh, I got to walk around and be sad about myself. And like, like, it's not saying you treat yourself like trash. But what it is saying is when you walk into a room, you, you are willing to say, I'm the least important person in this room right now. And I want to minister out of that to anyone else. Think about the way that we, we interact in social situations. If you're in a room, and you say you're at a business meeting, you got invited for some reason, and you're just you, and everybody in there are like tech gurus and stock market mongols, and, uh, and just like PhD doctors, right? And they're having a conversation and you're just kind of like, you're probably just chilling, right? And you're like, I'm not going to input much. I got a little street knowledge maybe I'll throw in every now and again, but I got no idea what they're talking about. But if you go into a room of people who have never graduated high school, who are, who are mentally ill or handicapped, who have significant trauma in their lives, you probably would start to act differently. You'd probably start to think that you are maybe the best seat in the table, right? And that affects the way that you see others and, and, and the community values that Jesus so, so passionately wants to etch into the kingdom. And so as we lower ourselves to, to the status of a child, we're not saying, well, I suck and I'm the worst and I have nothing significant to say, but that I'm so concerned with ministering and loving and shepherding others for the sake of the kingdom that I just don't care. Like, I don't worry about how I look or what I say. I'm not trying to impress people. And, we're guilty of this in the church, right? Like, you might say, well, I'm, I'm really taking this to my job, my workplace, and I'm trying to be more spirit-led in that. But then you come to church, and you're like, sign me up for everything so I can show off, right? Now, you don't say that out loud, right? You're not like, Trey, sign me up for everything. I want to be impressive. But in your heart, you kind of want that. Like, well, I want to do all these things. And then people be like, wow, look how spiritual they are. Or maybe you're single, and you're like, I'm going to win over a girl if I do all these things. Like, if I play guitar up here, 100% chance. I will find a girl, right? Or you just, and you start to justify it, even in the church. You're like, it just bleeds right in, right? So we're not, we're, not a, we're not exempt from any of this. And so Jesus is saying, look, like, accept or even place yourself at the bottom of the pecking order. You'll be amazed at how you lower your pride and your security becomes out of Jesus instead of the things that you can accomplish, the world that you can create, and the selfishness that you'll pursue. And to be honest, this is, this is nerving for us because, like, who wants to, I'm an adult, I've, 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 I've 
crafted my life to become autonomous, to become independent. Like if I was, you know, in my 30s or 40s and I like didn't have a career and I was like homeless, people would probably assume I made terrible decisions, right? Which you probably would for good reason, right? So we've built this life that I want to be able to control. I want to be secure in the things that I've created. So it's very counterintuitive. And this is why Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious expert, a solid Jewish guy, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night in John 3, and he says, hey, tell me about this like, kingdom thing. I don't understand it. And Jesus is like, you need to be born again. And he's like, I'm a grown man. I know how childbirth works. I don't know if that'll work. Like, how will I do that? That seems weird, right? And Jesus is just like, you idiot. Like, we're not talking about, like, being born again, like, physically. Like, you're not going to be a baby, right? You're not reincarnate as a baby. You can try it all over again. Do it all over. He's saying you need to, like, embody this posture of, of like, like, just starting over at a foot of woe. Like, just humble yourself. Repent. Turn from the ways that are just pursuing hell. They really are. They're pursuing hell. And he says, turn and become like a little child. And so the first part of these three is centered around this idea of submitting like a little one. Now, the word submit, you're like, I don't like that word. It gives me eebie-jeebies, right? Or maybe you've, you have submitted to a church community before and you've been totally burned or abused by them. And you're like, not again. And you tear this chapter out of your Bible. You're like, nope, right? I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to guard myself in such a way that nobody can speak into my life, but also nobody can hurt me, right? Because those two go hand in hand, right, when you're vulnerable. And so you say, no, I don't, I don't trust it. I don't want to give over. When you're a child, you give over security. You let people have authority over you, which we are Americans, and we don't believe in that, right, for the most part. And we don't want to, like, submit, right? We barely want to pay our taxes, like last week, right? We find ways around it. We, we don't want to have, we don't trust people for good reason and bad reason. We've been abused. We've seen people be abused. We don't trust the intent of the heart of the person. And so I want you to know that Jesus is on your team with that. He cares more than you, and that's why this next passage is so severe. You're going to read it and be like, oh, this is like the most intense Jesus thing that Jesus says. In verse 6, if you cause any of these little ones of my disciples who believe in me to sin or to stumble or to turn away from the faith, is probably a better translation, it will be better for him, that person, to have a huge millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the open sea and drowned. Woe to the world because of the stumbling box. It's necessary the stumbling box come. We're in a world of evil and malevolence and suffering and violence. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter the life of the kingdom crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into fiery Gehenna, hell. This is the second time Jesus uses the word hell. The word Gehenna is the Greek word, which is translated as a Hebrew word. They just like took the Hebrew word and like made it into Greek letters, Gehenna. And what Gehenna is referring to is actually a physical place for the most part. Now, I'm not saying hell like is not real spiritually, but in this instance, a lot of what they're referring to, the symbolism for it, is the valley of, um, I can't say it right, Kenom or Kidron, or you can look it up on your phones, you all have phones. But it's, it's essentially this place outside of Jerusalem where during the worst time of the Old Testament, the Israelites are so far away from God, Manasseh is king, and they, they, uh, they embody uh, and worship and, and cultivate this uh, worship of Molech, who is an evil god who demands child sacrifice. And so they start killing innocent babies and children on these altars to worship Molech, and they become so distanced from Yahweh, the one true God, that God is like, that's it, I've had enough, Babylon, come on in, right? And then exile for a couple hundred years, right? 
It's like Daniel and Nehemiah and all that fun church, all the history, right? And Jesus is like, I, I, God's like, I've had enough. And so what Jesus is referring to here is he's like, this is hell. And hell is not just this thing in the future that you'll either go to or not, depending on your status with God, right? But that it's, it's actually here now and your trajectory is walking into hell. He's saying if you keep pursuing pride and selfishness and arrogance and violence and greed, and you keep going that way, you're, you're walking into hell. Hell is choosing your own self as God over God. And he says, you're going to keep doing that. And the severity of that is so bad that just, just cut off wherever it's at. Just get rid of it. Purge it. Right? Like, it's just that bad. Now, I don't know very many, like, we don't have any machetes in the back as, like, a reflection time where you can chop off your arm. But, but, but we do have people who are like, need to pray for you because you're maybe enslaved in some form of sin or pattern or there's darkness and you're not bringing it to the light. And he's saying it's so severe that that pattern that you think will have not only ramifications on you, but on everyone around you. And that's why he gives two illustrations here. The first one is a millstone. It's just basically death. <laughs> Kill the person who it's so severe because they're causing all these other people in the faith to stumble. But the second one is more yourself. It's a personal, um, it's a personal elimination of something, right? And the reason why he puts that in there is because if you know sin, you know that the greatest lie about sin is that it only affects you. Well, it's, only, it's just my, I just control it. It's only me, right? Like, if I look at porn and I struggle with it in the dark, it won't affect anybody else. It's just my thing. I can keep it secret. I can hide it. I can keep it in the dark. And that's just not true. I'm not even that old. We haven't even counseled that many couples. But everybody who struggles with porn, it, it affects your marriage. It does, 100%. It affects your ability to, to pursue your wife in, like, a healthy, holy, gospel-centered way. It affects your ability to be friends with uh, People of the opposite sex, like if you're a guy, you, have, you, you accidentally you sexualize women and you have a hard time just being like pure and honest with them and vice versa with girls. You, if you have kids, you have daughters, you just feel this immense guilt and shame and you, you might even feel guilty sexualizing your daughters because it's so embedded in your head. Or, or maybe you have boys and you don't want to talk to them about it because you're just struggling with it, right? Like the sin that you have will always bleed into the world. And that's why we have a world of chaos and, and destruction and suffering. It's like... It's just humans all getting together and doing things that are bad, right? And it just causes consequences. It's the same with greed. Like, your greed is not just about you making money. It's about taking money from others. It's about not being generous. I mean, I can explain this with the clothing industry, right? Somebody makes your shirt for 10 cents so they can sell it for $25 and reap $18 in profit instead of paying that person a livable wage, right? Or I, I, I knocked on McDonald's. I love their fries, Right? But, or McDonald's, who puts just tons of chemicals and additives so they can make, so charges them a penny to make something they can charge for $2, right? It's just money. It's just profit. It's greed. It's money. They never think, maybe we should make less money and be healthier and, and not help the obesity crisis or the, or the chemicals we put in our body, right? I'm just naming too high, but like, it's everywhere. It's sin always bleeds outside of yourself. And the lie is Satan will try to make you isolate. He'll try to make you stay in the dark. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he's protecting his people. He's saying these little ones who are willingly submitting to the potential of these things hurting them, I'm not going to stand for it. I'm not going to stand for it. And, and so we might be like, oh, that's harsh. But actually, if he's not harsh about hell, then we don't have heaven. Right? Like, like do you want all that in heaven? Is that what you want? You want selfish people trying to manipulate you and control you and abuse you? He's like, you got just get rid of it. It's, it's, it's bad. If it's gonna, if it's gonna, he's like, I'd rather you enter the kingdom just like hobbling in with no legs or no arms than having your whole body and gonna go deceive and trick my sheep. It's not gonna happen. I'm not gonna allow it. 
I'll throw a millstone around you and throw you in the ocean. You're done. And so though we, we, we like get this idea of hell and it's, 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 it's unsettling, we actually should be comforted that Jesus takes it this serious. Because if we're submitting and we're, we're giving ourselves over to being like a social status of a child, our main fear is, is someone going to take advantage of me? Am I going to achieve what I think I need to achieve? Is my securities that I've built my life around going to hold? And some of them actually won't. Right? Like, let's think about Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. He's been stealing money from people. Basically, he takes money. Rome tells him to take this much. He takes this much. He keeps this much. Gives the other ones to the centurions so they can break people's kneecaps so they don't pay. He's a crook, right? And then he, he finds Jesus, and he says, I will give back four times everybody what I have stolen. Think about that. He's homeless, right? If you're like, man, I just need to give back four times of every dollar I've spent, where, where does that lead you? Taking out some loans, right? He, he is willingly saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lower myself, and it's going to cause thing, like ramifications, and, but I don't care. I trust that God... And, and, and I, I know he's serious about this, and I'm just, I'm going to lean into that. So the first one is submitting as a little one, we have a natural fear that I'm not in control anymore, and the life that I built may crumble in pieces. But it's better for your life that you've made in the kingdom on earth of sin to crumble than for you to not have a kingdom in heaven, right? And that's what he's saying, like, cut off some towers of your kingdom, because if you don't even make it in the kingdom, you're, you're, you're dead. And I think that when we, when we think about like, what Jesus is getting at here, because I think practically I'm thinking, okay, that's really serious. Like, if, I, if I'm the person guilty of that, like, I get a millstone thrown around my neck, I get thrown in, I drown. Like, what, what does that look like? And I, I, I put down some, like, practical answers because I think that you might not be like, I caused this massive slandering riot in our church and tore everyone apart, and I'm the guilty one. It, it might be subtle and small, but it's things like if we're just constantly discouraging people like crazy in our church, if we're not encouraging, if we're constantly slandering or gossiping or or just trying to either one-up ourselves or just lower other people, right? Sometimes we don't, we don't up ourselves, we just lower everyone else around us, right? How can we discourage people from following Jesus well? Or maybe we give unfair criticism. We're just critical, we're cynical. Maybe we lack good discerning shepherding and pastoral care. We don't know when to have hard conversations, or we have so many hard conversations because we think we're right and we don't have any discernment or tact or delicacy for that person or maybe, this will be next week, we fail to forgive. We fail to, to seek, which is the ministry of reconciliation, which is the gospel. That we reconcile ourselves to others in the church community and that we, we fight to, to make things right among them. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you're never to despise, to look down, or treat my kids with any sort of malevolence, violence. These are my children. And if you do it bad, it's, I'm not going to mess around with it. I won't tolerate it. Now, the problem with, like, this millstone and the sins and things is, like, the church is very guilty of that. Like, sometimes the church is the hardest reason why people can't experience Jesus, which is just a total bummer. And I'm not saying, like, all church hurt, right? There's every church hurt's different, and there's different reasons, and there's always different sides. And I'm not trying to get into that. But, but what I do know is that, like, I, I look at our church, and I'm like, are, are we creating these stumbling blocks? Are we... Are we pushing ourselves forward in such a way that we're judging people heavily, that we're not relying on the Spirit, we're not praying, we're, we're quicker to speak than we are to pray, right? We are trying to elevate ourselves in such a way that we think we know better. And this doesn't mean that like, we're not a church with accountability and with doctrine and like have our truths that we, we form around, but, but that we are we willing to love the people around us in, in the significance that Jesus would. I think about, um, like as a church, you know, 
he's saying first to submit his little children. And essentially, if you've been a part of a church, you might know this. It might have been a more formal structure than others. Some churches have like a very rigorous church membership where you like go through like 10 classes and you learn all the doctrine and you, you just like are assume, like you just kind of assume yourself into this like culture and then you're, you're held digital, accountable. You vote on things. People hold you accountable. They, they're constantly evaluating you, all that kind of stuff. Then you have other churches where you just, you can show up. You can do whatever you want. There's no accountability really. There's no um, membership or there's no way of like holding you accountable. And what I would say Jesus is saying here is like if you're not accountable to anyone, you're really missing what it means to be a little one. You're not lowering yourself. Now look, I'm not saying like I have a massive responsibility that I sweat at night because of because if I, I, am, I am capable of causing massive destruction to you guys. Like, if you follow, I mean, we're not a megachurch. We're not even anything close to that. But if you followed megachurches in the last 10 years, there's not a lot of them left. Because their pastor did something really stupid, and the next week, thousands of people left. Now, I'm not saying that, like, their faith was directly intrinsic to his or her. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's not just them. But that is the seriousness of shepherding, right? And of, 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 of pastoring people. But... People need to be willing to, to start off submitting as little ones. Can we trust in a community? Can we know what the unhealth looks like and, and take that serious? But I would say if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and there's no one in your life that can call you on your crap, that can raise potential flags they're nervous about, that can hold you accountable, that can help you become more like Jesus, you're not a part of a church. You are on a resort. Sarah and I go to Cancun. We love it. It's great. Uh, and their, their biggest motto, if you ask anyone that works there, most of them are, are Mexican, they'll say, our goal is just to make you fat and happy. They do a pretty good job, I would say. They have a workout room, not a lot of people use it, right? But they have room service 24-7. So, but if we, if we live there, it's great for seven days, you unplug, like, you just like, but if we live there, like, I would start to believe, like, I'm king, right? If I talk about, if I want anything that makes me fat or happy, they'll bring it to me. That's what they do. But we know that's, 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 like, ridiculous. We need people in our lives that hold us accountable. That If I was there for 30 days, say, Trey, like, you're eating 12 entrees a night. Like, you might need, like, gluttony might be something you should pray about, right? Instead of being like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to offend you, right? So I'm not saying that we just abandon accountability and, and, and hard conversations and confrontation, but that this submission of being a little, and we have to be aware of how much Jesus cares for that person. If that person in your life is struggling, Jesus cares far more about them than you do. And, and if we're not, and, if, and we have to take serious the way at which we hold people accountable, the way at which, like, I, my job is a big deal, not because I'm anything special, but because God has entrusted me with this, and I, I, I deal with the ramifications of it if I get it wrong, right? Like, the millstone is there. <laughs> not that I wake up and be like, hang a millstone on the wall, but, but it's there, right? And I would argue that we all have that ability. We can, we, there's someone who's struggling in our life, and if we're not prayerful and we don't, we don't, take serious the hurt they may have had or where they're struggling or the doubts, that we can cause far more damage. But the good news is, is that Jesus didn't stop there. And so the third section is this, this heart that, that, that roots all of this, right? Becoming like a little one, submitting, but then also dealing with the severity that Jesus does. And this is a heart for, uh, for shepherding those people, for shepherding the wanderers is what I would call them. And so in verse 10, you see this little, uh, little parable he says, see that you do not disdain one of these little ones, upset, despise. For I tell you that their angels in heaven 
always see the face of my Father in heaven. And then verse 11, which is in some translations, I don't have time for that. But for the Son of Man came to save the lost. And then verse 12, what do you think? If someone owns 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, will he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go look for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice more over it than the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that one of these little ones be lost. Now, Jesus and what he's doing here, he's, he's kind of like putting all these together. He's saying, as a follower of Jesus, your job is to submit as a little one, to lower yourself so that you might love others well and understand the way to the gospel, just as Jesus did. And that if bad things happen in the world, Jesus is, is very much severely caring about that. And he's, he has a community of people that will discern that and help navigate through that, right? Like if bad things happen, we want to handle it really well. That's why we have accountability in all of our finances and myself. And like we want to be held accountable so that no one can just take advantage, right? But if, if those things happen at the end, it's rooted, it's rooted in the heart of God's heart for the lost, for the wanderer. Now what's unique about this parable, maybe you've heard this before, you've heard of like Reckless Love, the song that's all about this idea. This story is told in Luke as well, but Luke's is more about reaching a person who doesn't know God, who is lost. This story Matthew uses is specifically about someone who would claim to be a follower of Jesus or has been grown up in the church and is, is struggling, is wandering off. Now, wandering off can mean a lot of things. It could mean they're, they're headed on a path you're really nervous about. They're pursuing a lot of bad habits, bad relationships. It could be they're intellectually doubting. They're, they're struggling, right? They're reading a lot of, like, I don't know, hard books or whatever, and they're, they're struggling reconciling their beliefs and all that. It could be any of those things. But God says, like, my heart is for those people, and so then is yours. That, that these little ones, don't despise them, don't disdain them, but who wouldn't go out and find their lost sheep? And so our job as a church, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, I mean, three S's, make it simple, right? Submit, the severity of everything, and then, and then shepherding. Our response as a community is to shepherd the wanderer. And I said as a community, like, sure, my job, title, Pastor Trey, right, whatever, I shepherd, pastor. But I was thinking about it, I'm like, this is not just for me, this is for everyone. Meaning if you have someone in your life who's struggling, you have a responsibility and, and hopefully have a heart like Jesus to, to love them and reach them and grab them where they are and meet them where they're at and bring them back. We do. Now, that doesn't mean that we just... Like, there's times where, you know, they might be aggressively, like, cussing you out, and maybe your only action then to reach them is prayer, right? Like, maybe you've lost your ability to speak into their life, right? Or maybe you've just done it poorly, and you're like, Jesus, like, that was not good, right? But we, we are all called to shepherd one another. Think about this community, and, and when we read this, and this is how I want to sum it up, um, is if this... If this thing that Jesus is talking about, this, this culture, this kingdom that he's creating, actually happened in the way that he says it happens, it's like the most beautiful thing ever. Imagine being a part of a family with parents who only discipline you when they really need to, right? You got to, I mean, disciplining your children is essential. My daughter wakes up in the morning and I'll just say, Dad, candy. And I'm like, no, come on. If I was just like, sure, eat all the chocolate you want, we'd be at the dentist in two weeks. Like, well, she has no more teeth. Well, she's got adult teeth. She'll be fine. But... Uh, but it's it, discipline. Like, imagine that you're in this community, it's hard to imagine, that, that is, is flawless, that is willingly always humbling themselves for the sake of others. That's, that's always not pursuing greed or pride or status or influence or impressiveness or selfishness and just loves you radically for the sake of Jesus and your formation to him. It's like the best thing ever. And you know that Jesus cares so much because he has severity for when things go wrong. 
And then you know that, that your, your job is to be a part of that, to be a part of that reconciling community, to be a part of loving the wonder. Like, it's the, most, it's the coolest thing ever. And so we often read this, and we, we've experienced the evil of the world that has caused us to not lean into this as a philosophy of church. And so I want to encourage you, one of the coolest things that we do in core group is uh, we, we start out, well, most times we start off with confession, and so we just talk about, like, sins and things that, that we need to bring to light, that we need Jesus to heal us from, restore us from, and, uh, and, and be held accountable to. And there's nothing more equalizing than sitting in me sitting in a room with my core group guys and being like, yeah, I just like totally screwed up in this, right? Like it just, and it's like I said, we don't handle it. We're not like, oh man, you suck. Yeah, you're really like, we're not like just like bagging on each other. But to bring ourselves to this point where I trust my family and my family will help me love Jesus more even when I don't like it. And even if they're doing it wrong, I trust that Jesus will handle them pretty severely. And so as a church, I think as we kind of reflect on this, and uh, I'm going to invite, Nick's going to play a little bit for our, our time of form, formation, is that first is, am I willing to become like a little one? What are my fears, my doubts, my past, my traumas that I'm just like, I don't want to let go of. I don't want to be vulnerable. I'm just stressed about it. Or I don't want to renounce my obsession with power, money, wealth, greed, whatever. Second thing is evaluating where are the stumbling blocks in your life, your community, meaning like, you know, I used a few examples, greed, pornography, whatever. Like, there's things that are eating you up and you're hiding them and you need to come to the light. Whether you share it with me or whoever's in the back or I don't even know. Like, just, it, it will kill not only you but the people around you. You will drag. Jesus says, if, if, if a blind leads a blind, they're going to both fall into a pit together, right? And in, in Jesus' illustration of Gehenna, if you're walking into hell and you're dragging people with you, like... So acknowledge what are the stumbling blocks that I've created in my life that are affecting my heart, but also my community around me. Am I slandering? Am I trying to get, become impressive by the things I say? Am I hiding sin in my heart and life that really no one knows about that I need to bring to light, that I need to confess? Am I, am I evaluating not only my actions, but my interior life and my heart? And then lastly, we act out of a pastoral burden to help those wandering away. Get outside yourself and think about those who are wondering their struggles. Listen, 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 pray, 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 and maybe talk. I, uh, I'm, I struggle with this uh, pretty much on a daily basis, but um, I'd far rather just like talk than listen or pray. Um, but listen, 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 pray, 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 and maybe talk. Shepherd people. Don't, don't assume anyone else is going to do it either. Take responsibility. Don't be like, well, they just need 30 minutes to train. They'll be all ironed out. Like, that's a terrible idea. Take ownership. It's hard, but it's worth it. And, and a healthy family and Jesus' family that he's talking about here has humility, it listens, and it confronts for the sake of unity, but he's in charge of the carnage. So I encourage you to reflect on that during our time of formation. We've got four things you can do. You can reflect on the teaching, the story, foster care. If there's a burden that, that the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart, it's there for a reason and praying about the implications of that. We also believe that giving is an act of worship, obedience, and faith. So if you want to give physically, we've got a box in the back by the TV or you can give online, QR code. Uh, we have prayer. People in the back, we'd love to pray for you. If you are hiding in the darkness, you will not regret receiving prayer and bringing it to the light. It will only help you in the long run, I promise. We'll do our best to love you well in it. And then lastly, the bread and cup, which is just the symbol and the reminder that Jesus lowered himself lower than really anyone could. A king became a naked, broken, crucified, made fun of, heckled, lied to Savior. And so we eat his body, 
symbolically as a reminder of what he has done for us and what should permeate in our heart for others in the culture that we want to be. So we'll give you some time and then we'll sing one last song as we wrap up. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.